Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, if I'm not mistaken, you are fresh back from hobnobbing with other education historians. I am so refreshed and jazzed after that. Nothing like a conference gets me fired up. I feel like I have been bathed in uh, the the sentiments and wisdom of my people. Well, I think I speak on behalf of our entire listening audience when I ask, are there actually a lot of you? There are so many of us, Jennifer, that uh, we needed the largest conference hall available in the Hyatt Regency of Columbus, Ohio. Well, Jack, welcome back. And as you know, I spend most of my time ordering books, asking you to read them. (laughs) You mean asking for books and ordering me to read them. (laughs) Actually, that's actually a little bit more accurate. So I actually came across this book because I saw people raving about it on Twitter. It's called White Kids, Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. It's by Margaret Hagerman. And I started reading it. And first, it's amazing. It's an ethnography. And so she spends years following kids and parents around in a town that she doesn't identify. And we get to really listen in on their conversations about how they understand race, how they understand privilege, and more importantly for our, from where we're coming from, how all of this relates to the schools that they choose for their kids to attend. So Jack, as I was reading this, I thought to myself, Jack has to read this. And two, this is actually really relevant to Jack's work. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this with Maggie Hagerman, who is an assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State University and whose ethnographic research really reveals, I think, more about schools and what we need to do to improve our schools than lots of the quantitative uh, ed policy research conducted by economists. That Take is, that data, boys. That is, <laughs> that is in vogue. You know, there, there's a place for them too, but I think it's really important to carve out a place for all forms of scholarship and insight. And I, I just think that qualitative research like this is so often overlooked presently and can be so powerful in terms of helping us understand what's going on in schools and communities And what can we do with the knowledge that we gain from that in order to improve the lives of young people? Our guest today, Maggie Hagerman, is an ethnographer, which means that her research is based on deep access into the lives of her subjects. Well, here, I'll let her explain it. This book is based off of two years of ethnographic research. Um, I moved to a community that I was not from, and I spent a lot of time with um, these 30 families, with the parents and with the children. And so I have all kinds of rich details that I could share um, from the line, the sidelines of soccer games and from um, babysitting and from driving children to school and so forth. Now, you know that on Have You Heard, we are 
often raving about a book. And White Kids is no exception. But the challenge we have here is that merely talking about the book doesn't do justice to its extraordinary richness. The sense that you get that you're right there listening in as parents and their kids talk about race in schools. So I asked Hagerman if she could bring to life one of the families she follows in the book. There was one moment when I was sitting in a coffee shop with a 12-year-old girl and her mom, and I asked the 12-year-old if um, she could think of an example of witnessing racism, and this is what she said. She said, yes, uh, which I was surprised about. And then she said, I remember one time I was at a liquor store with my mom about a year ago, and there were a bunch of black guys in front of us, and only two of out, two of them out of the three or four, I think, had an ID. But they were obviously like 45 years old. But the guy wouldn't let them buy the bottle of liquor. So they were like, oh, fine, man, and then they left. And then my mom and I were there, and she was getting her bottle of Merlot or whatever, and the cashier didn't even ask her for an ID. He was just like, okay, you're done. And we went outside, and I heard the black men talking near their car about the cashier and calling her white trash and so on. And so what's interesting is that Meredith, this child's mother, suddenly interrupts her kid's story and is like, honey, I think that you know when you buy something at the liquor store, all the people in your party need to show their ID. And then Meredith interrupts her mom and says, those guys were not even standing near the register and I was with you and I'm not 21 and then her mom rolls her eyes say okay honey if you say so and so then you know the the daughter storms off to the bathroom with her cell phone and she's mad and so the mom tells me that you know this is just teenage antics but what was so fascinating for me is that then later when I was talking with the child without her mom she told me that that moment for her really was an example of racism and she says sometimes my mom is racist and tries to pretend like she isn't My mom just hates talking about that kind of stuff. It turns out that a lot of the complicated attitudes that kids develop about race has to do with schools, their understanding of where they go to school, where their schools are located, who their classmates are, and who they don't go to school with. What I try to map out in this book are the differences between these groups of kids and these families and the ways that they're different are largely um, connected to the choices that parents have made about how to set up their child's social environment. And so that means things like what school to send their children to, what neighborhood to live in, what kind of peer groups to have, what type of, you know, extracurricular activities to do, where to travel. And so I look at these sort of bundled choices is how I describe it um, because often, you know, like as other research shows, the choice about where to live is often shaped by perceptions of the local schools. And so I find that the parents in this book, um, although they are all similar in that they have race and class privilege, they make different decisions. You know, they use their resources to make different decisions that, um, you know, that create different environments that their kids are then interpreting. So Meredith very infrequently comes in contact with kids of color. She very, her teachers are all white. She has no black or brown, you know, soccer coaches or gymnastics coaches or anything like that. Um, Her life is, is, is very much a sort of white bubble. And so I was actually very surprised when she was having that conversation with her mom. Um, As I mentioned, it's very different than many of the other kids growing up in her neighborhood. So Jack, as someone who studies school quality and thinks a lot about how parents think about school quality, I kind of imagine that reading Hagerman's book was like listening in on conversations for you and that maybe it wasn't the most pleasant experience. 
I had to keep a pillow nearby so that when I wanted to smash my head against the wall, I didn't do lasting damage to myself. Um, you know, it's something that there actually is a small but uh, significant body of research on the way that white people use race as a proxy for school quality, which is not to say that they don't use race as a direct determinant as they're thinking about where they want to send their kids to school. Um, there's some evidence that all racial groups do this, although white people tend to prefer significantly whiter schools uh, than other racial groups will prefer in terms of an in-group selection. Uh, but white families will also use race as an indicator, uh, either consciously or subconsciously as they're thinking about where the quote-unquote good schools are. Um, and then this, as we know, is uh, further reinforced by existing accountability systems that tend to correlate pretty strongly with factors like family income, parental educational attainment, and as a result of that, race. A key part of Hagerman's argument is that children's attitudes about race are shaped in part by conversations among their parents and friends about schools and whether they're good or bad. The parents she follows talk constantly about school quality and often in terms that are explicitly racial. You know, parents are definitely thinking about race when they're making these decisions, but sometimes those conversations are happening between parents. And so I think that there's a lot of information about schools and the school's reputations and these notions of which school is the good school that are coming from the word of mouth, right? So parents are talking to each other about where they're sending their kids, and then parents are making these decisions that that seem very individual, but I think are actually far more collective when you're thinking about like the collective of these white affluent parents in this community. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there were, there were explicit examples in my research, um, where, where parents were explicitly moving out of this city to live in a, you know, a white suburb basically. And they talked about how, you know, they felt kind of bad about that in some ways, but in other ways they didn't care because, you know, their perception was that their child would get a better better education at the suburban school. What was so fascinating to me, though, is that when I looked at some of these um, metrics that people, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if they use them or not, but they talk about a lot in terms of like test scores and um, college placement and those things. Um, you know, these schools were actually comparable in the city school actually had far more AP offerings and these other things that, um, as problematic as they might be in different reasons, for different reasons, um, these, these suburban parents were opting out of. Um, and I talk about how that, I think, is because they say things like, you know, we wanted to live in this good community with a bunch of people like us, uh, which is, to me, code for other white affluent families. The parents who are choosing the quote-unquote good suburban schools also see the schools as benefiting from that choice. Take a parent we meet early on in the book named Holly. Yeah, she has high expectations of the schools that her kids are going to attend, and she wants those schools to work for her, basically. Um, and so, yeah, she thinks that my, you know, my child is one of the kids that scores high on your the standardized tests that are being, you know, given, and that ups the average for the whole school. You know, this is my my daughter's a leader in the school, um, and so subsequently, like, you need to, you know, the school needs to work for her. I cite in the book actually some a, a really great book 
called Despite the Best Intentions by Amanda Lewis and John Diamond. And they have this amazing quote that says, quote, um, white middle-class parents are not just advocating for their own children. Um, they're also advocating for the maintenance of the structures of inequality that facilitate their advantage. And so when, when this mom is telling me that she's looking for a school that would work for her kids, you know, she's ultimately you know, looking for a school that is functioning to provide her kids with what she wants for them. So in many ways, it's about parents getting what they want, um, no matter the expense to everybody else. So Jack, we just heard Maggie Hagerman just giving this very vivid, granular example of a parent's transactional relationship with a school. And I, you know, I really had not, I hadn't seen this and so I, I found this really eye-opening, but the idea that that you would expect the school to produce for you and that you would have, a, you know, I, I almost want to use the expression quid pro quo. I want you to tell me more about this, not as Jack Schneider researcher, not as Jack Schneider education historian, but as someone who lives in a community that's rapidly gentrifying and where schools are a prime site of that gentrification, you must see exactly what she's talking about up close all the time. In fact, maybe you engage in that kind of behavior yourself. Shame on you, Jennifer. <laughs> um, well, the, you know, the, the first thing that I think about is um, the major problem that this poses for even integrated schools. One of the cases that I have made for integrated schools is that if you have uh, the, the most powerful parents in a community involved in that school, that in advocating for their own kids, they will unintentionally advocate for all kids, that the way they bring resources to bear uh, in that school, that their exertion of influence will end up bringing uh, greater opportunities for kids who wouldn't have experienced those opportunities had they not been in the same school as the children of those highly influential, powerful parents. And here what we see is, well, maybe not so fast. Uh, maybe, in fact, uh, there are going to be parents who figure out how to advocate for their kids, how to secure resources for their kids in a way that doesn't really spill over to other kids. And that, for me, is the most disturbing part of this because I think we're finally getting some traction nationally uh, for the first time in a couple decades around the importance of integrated schools and to then begin thinking about, well, what are the ways that parents might savvily work to even further exacerbate what we already see in terms of in-school segregation and how might they uh, you know, justify that to themselves as being good parents and doing for their own kids uh, what is right. Uh, that, to me, is the most troubling piece. The central paradox that Hagerman identifies in her book is that for these parents, quote-unquote, good parenting means giving their kids as many opportunities as they can. But being a good citizen means that they're supposed to resist taking advantage of structural privilege in ways that disadvantage others. I call this the conundrum of privilege because um, 
I really did find evidence that parents felt as if they were having to choose between being a good parent or being a good citizen. Um, I want to state really clearly that I don't think these two things have to be different, but for many of the parents, they were. And so, um, and I'm particularly talking about the folks in my, in my research who identified as being politically progressive and anti-racist, even in some cases. Um, and so on the one hand, you know, these parents told me that they wanted to be good citizens and raise kids who rejected racism and, you know, they were, they were deeply, deeply committed to challenging inequality. But on the other hand, you know, these are parents that have a lot of resources and we have this collectively agreed upon idea that being a good parent means providing the best opportunities that you can for your child. And by best opportunities, oftentimes people think that, think, think, think that that means, you know, getting them into, you know, basically hoarding opportunities for their kids, um, you know, systematically helping their children, um, you know, find opportunities at the expense of other groups of children. And so uh, I think they're faced with having to make these difficult decisions. Like for example, you know, do they hire a private tutor to help their kid despite their commitment to public education? You know, and that commitment to public education is often, I want everything to be equal. You know, I support this because I think all kids in America should go to, to go to, to go, should go to the same kind of school. And yet they're giving their kids, you know, extra schooling through this private tutoring. Um, or whether to, you know, sign their kid up for, um, an exclusive summer program and then make sure that they get in by calling their friend who, you know, is on the board of whatever. So, you know, I think oftentimes in these moments, parents end up making decisions that put their own child ultimately in a more advantageous position than other kids. And so my major overarching argument in the book is that this ultimately reproduces um, you know, the unfair advantages and the unequal way that our society is organized. And what's so funny is that this is like exactly what they say they want to overcome. And so I try to draw out this conundrum or this sort of um, tension that they experience between being a good parent and a good citizen. We just heard Maggie Hagerman talking about this paradox between what she refers to as the good citizen versus the good parent, that that parents want to raise kids that are going to contribute in some meaningful way and be good people, right? They don't want to raise jerks. But on the other hand, they feel this unbelievable pressure now to just pour every single resource imaginable into their kids so that their kids will succeed, so that their kids will do as well as they've done or better, and that they won't fall out of the class. And I feel like just in the last couple of years, you see all sorts of sort of interesting research and perspective on this very question, right? Whether it's people talking about opportunity hoarding or just the understanding of how inequality works on the kind of, you know, like basic day-to-day life decisions that people make. We've talked about this on the show previously as a tension between public goods and private goods that there is a return to uh, the, the body politic in sending your kid to a diverse school. There are lots of benefits for everybody in that. Um, whereas opportunity hoarding is something that benefits only an individual family and actually comes at the expense of other people. 
And I think one critical element that I want to add to this is this pervasive myth of schools as engines of meritocracy and that we really saw that develop across the latter part of the 20th century as more opportunities opened to people. There was a rise in competitiveness over schooling because suddenly more people had access to it. And this myth that education was the thing that distinguished uh, winners from losers um, is something that we continue to be haunted by. And it's something that people buy into so thoroughly that they believe they will actually be engaging in parental malpractice if they aren't securing every possible educational advantage for their kids. And I think what we actually see is not only do they end up hurting all the kids who aren't getting those same opportunities, in many cases they end up hurting their own kids as well. We've seen skyrocketing rates of stress and burnout in high-income schools. Uh, we have seen declining levels of engagement in high-income schools. There is also a concern about more privileged kids from uh, this latest generation, the millennials, who are graduating from school uh, with every possible credential and then not really having a clear sense of what they want to do or what all of the uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth was all about. Um, so I think it's really important to step back and think about what are the things that truly benefit young people, not only in terms of thinking about all kids, but even just selfishly thinking about our own kids. Uh, is this sort of uh, tooth and claw competition for status and advantage actually even serving the kids who uh, it is designed to serve? Hagerman had a chance to return to the city where she did her ethnographic research four years after she finished. And what she found was pretty disturbing. The students' racial attitudes, which she'd observed beginning to take shape, had solidified into racial ideologies by the time they reached high school. Yeah, you know, it was so fascinating to go back and, and talk to some of the kids again um, as high school students, and I talk about that in the very end of the book. Um, you know, it was very interesting to me to see, as you said, that their ideas really had solidified, um, and they really had become much more polarized from one another, like these groups of kids. And it's hard to know if that's because of the current like political climate or that kind of unfolded in between you know, my first point of data collection and my second, or if that's like connected to, you know, a developmental process of kids figuring out their, their political views as they get older and that kind of thing. Um, but it was very interesting. And, um, as I write about in the book, there was, um, a, a devastating tragedy of, um, black teenager was killed by the, a police officer in one of the communities that I studied in one of the neighborhoods. And so I did talk to the kids and it was very interesting to hear sort of their different takes on that, um, that tragedy. And so I guess if there's any hope, there's one, there was one example, um, of a student that, or of a, of a, young person that was telling me about participating in some of the activism around this. And she explicitly told me that when she participated in a walkout that her school had, the students at her school had organized, she purposefully stood at the back of it so that she could let her, not let, but so that she, so that she was not like making it about her, that she was there to support her friends who had put the walkout together who were black and that she didn't want to make this about her. Um, and I, I thought that that was just, um, 
you know, I think that's just, uh, I was surprised to see that from, or to hear that from such a um, young person, given some of the things that some of her peers had been telling me, you know? So yeah, there's a lot to think about with that, um, as being an ethnographer and trying to navigate this. I mean, it's, it's hard to navigate your emotions in the field, no matter what, but I think especially around working with young people, um, as they're trying to figure things out. It's impossible to read Hagerman's book without being forced to confront a really uncomfortable question. Public education is supposed to be the great equalizer, but what if it's doing the opposite, making racial and class divides even deeper? We put that question to Hagerman. Well, it's funny you ask me that because that's literally the core course question for my sociology of education class that I'm teaching right now to my undergraduate college students. Um, This question of, you know, are schools ultimately about, you know, reproducing inequality? Um, You know, we often think that schools are this great place where everyone can go and and they can work hard and, you know, those that work the hardest uh, will be you know, the highest achieving and will, and will can go on to call whatever college they want. And, you know, this whole narrative about the American dream and, and hard work and meritocracy, um, or are schools simply reproducing forms of inequality and, and, and hierarchies that have long existed, you know, and I think that there's many, many, many studies that, as I'm sure, you know, better than me, that, that really document the ways that the institution of education is actually reproducing all kinds of, of inequality, um, despite, what we, you know, despite our sort of ideals about what it might look like. Um, So so those are the thoughts that come to mind, um, at least at first. As you can probably tell from this episode, Jack and I are both huge fans of Hagerman's book. I hope you'll buy it and read it. In the meantime, we wanted to know what she's got planned for her next project. My new project is a study in which I am trying to understand the ways that racial socialization and political socialization are linked together, maybe in some ways. And so I am doing research with kids in both Mississippi and in Massachusetts, um, looking at how middle school kids today um, in this exact moment are thinking about racism in the era of Trump and sort of how their ideas about racism are connected to um, the current political moment, but also geographic region and where they're growing up and how they're thinking about things. So I'm still in the early stages, but I have, I have interviewed some children and it's, um, yeah, it's really rich data. (laughs) That was Maggie Hagerman. She's an assistant professor of sociology at Mississippi State and the author of White Kids Growing Up with Privilege in a Racially Divided America. You should definitely read it. And Jack and I will be right back. So, Jack, so much of what Hagerman was just talking about had to do with how these students perceived the schools that they attended versus the other schools. They had a whole elaborate lexicon for talking about schools, which were the good ones, which were the bad ones. Reading this made me kind of sad, but then I thought, wow, Jack's work is actually kind of relevant. (laughs) Take the word actually out when you edit this, Jennifer. What we see is that existing measurement systems do very little to disrupt the way that race and class shape people's interpretations of where good schools are. Uh, you know, one of the big problems here is that schools are not like 
let's say, a sandwich where you take a bite and you know if you like it or not. Uh, or like a pair of jeans where if you know what your size is, it's going to be relatively easy to find something that you like. With schools, you often don't know for a long time after sending your kid there. Um, it's something that you need to experience. And as a result of that, it's, it's really hard for people to understand without sending their kids there where the good and bad schools are. As a result, they often fall back on status ideology. Well, where do the most powerful people send their kids and use that as a proxy? And of course, in a country with uh, a very troubling history around race and uh, high levels of inequality, um, we can see that people, when they are looking around for the schools that are the best schools, oftentimes decide that the schools that must be the best schools must be the places where the middle class and affluent white kids are. And when they look at data systems and they see that those are the schools with the highest standardized test scores, and we are pervasively told that that is a good indicator of school quality, um, we really rigidify these problematic views of schools. And you know, Maggie Hagerman is talking primarily about race, and so we'll just say that it rigidifies a racialized view of school quality. And I think that it's really important then to step back and think about our measurements not as an ostensible act of objective quantification, but as a potential lever for racial and economic justice, uh, a potential lever for helping people see that actually many of those schools that serve historically marginalized populations are really good schools, in some cases even better schools. Uh, they just happen to not have many of the outward indicators that people take as signifiers of school quality. And if we could signal that more strongly, then it might do a great deal to advance the aim of economic and racial integration in our schools. It might do a great deal to uh, end the kinds of pervasive attacks and assaults we see on schools serving historically marginalized kids and enable those schools to, instead of always reacting and responding to reforms coming down the pike in a top-down fashion, uh, to intervention after intervention, to be able to actually systematically improve their schools and respond to community concerns. Well, Hangerman is an ethnographer, which is now officially the career that I wish I had pursued in lieu of whatever it is I actually did pursue. So the way that, that her ethnography worked, we don't know where she went, right? We can guess. Um, people have speculated. <laughs> see, your wink, people can't see you winking as you're, you're saying that. No, this is all in an elaborate buildup, Jack, to put you on the spot. Because as I was reading the book, I was wondering... Well, gee, I know somebody who's been actively working on building a better measure of school quality. What if this had been in place in the community where she went? Would it have looked any different? Um, and I'm just wondering what you think. Like, do you feel like the work you're, you're doing has the potential to disrupt the kind of corrosive forces that she documents? Or do you just feel like, you know what? It's pretty hopeless. <laughs> I will play the role of optimist today and say that, you know, if you give people better measures of school quality, if you created, let's say, a data system that measured all the things we care about in schools, not just standardized test scores, but things like how engaged kids are, how much they value learning, how safe they feel, uh, how strong their relationships with their teachers are, and you did that in a way that was not 
uh, biased against schools serving historically marginalized populations. I think that it would do a great deal to disrupt the narratives uh, that exist in America around good and bad schools, but it, it certainly wouldn't do so immediately, that it would have to be coupled with people who essentially play the role of activists and advocates that would use that as evidence in anti-racist arguments about where good and bad schools are. Um, you know, that this is ultimately a, a fight that is going to be decided not by data systems, but by the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we believe. Ultimately, those stories are the most powerful way to disrupt these narratives about school quality. And I think that those narratives are so thinly rooted uh, that there really isn't strong evidence that people can point to when they say that you know the best schools are in the most affluent neighborhoods. And uh, so often it's just a matter of simply asking people questions about how they know what they know, um, that, that really the emperor has no clothes here uh, and that this is a conversation that I really hope we begin to have on a more systematic basis on a national level because I think it could make a great deal of difference to kids. So Jack, other than going back and reliving my life and becoming an ethnographer, do you know what my other fondest dream is right now? Um, to to be the nation's storyteller in chief in order to help people uh, tell better, fairer stories about schools and school quality. I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but you're right. I wouldn't mind doing that. <laughs> Actually, my dream... Race car driver. My dream is that you would have to read an ad for an ed tech company in the podcast voice the way that all the cool kid podcasts do. You mean like when Malcolm Gladwell just seamlessly begins shilling for some company? You know, speaking of which, Jennifer, um, these pants that I'm wearing, they just fit so great right now. <laughs> and those funny Silicon Valley shoes you're wearing look really great too. Well, they've got a microchip embedded in them that actually make me smarter. Well, unfortunately, we don't have any ads to read, so that means that for now, oh, we're making our traditional well approach to the paywall. Really well done. As listeners know, we rely on your support to keep the podcast going. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpod, and you'll see all the ways that you can support us just for a few dollars a month and get cool extras like a reading list and a special behind-the-scenes area that we like to call In the Weeds. Jack and I go there after after each episode and we hold forth on some on some topic that I come up with and then spring upon him. Jack, do you want to know what we're talking about today? No, I don't. I just we'll we'll just do that in the weeds where people can no, uh, people, people have to be, pay for my embarrassment. People are going to be really interested in this. So last time we talked about why there was such acrimony between the Sanders and Warren camp over education. And I thought, you know, that was really fun and people really like that. Let's keep our 2020 theme alive. And our topic today is, what in the world is going on with the schools in South Bend, Indiana? Home to of Mayor Pete. Pete. <laughs> Home to Mayor Pete. <laughs> Terrific. Well, those of you who are instead channeling your resources to uh, the causes of racial justice and economic equality, uh, good on you. And we don't need your money uh, if that's how you're spending it. Um, 
please share the podcast with your friends. Uh, go on, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. It helps people find the show. And you can also go on to Twitter and tweet about the show and tag the handle at Have You Heard Pod. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 